Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Explore a collection on great masters about well-known musicians and composers. And right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 66, titled, What Do You Mean, What Is It Like?, wherein we discuss the hidden layers of an everyday expression. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. The year, Bobby, is 1878. The poem is Amelia, and the poet is Coventry Patmore. Now, before I tell you what any of that has to do with us, I would point out that Mr. Patmore's full name is Coventry Kersey Dighton Patmore. The man has four names, and they're all last names. (laughs) So if my name were Brumali Miller Epstein Vuolo, just to pick the last names of my four grandparents, would I be an obscure 19th century poet? No, right? (laughs) No, but you would probably be in perpetual therapy. (laughs) Brumali, come in here. So Coventry Patmore, although not a poet that I imagine many people have heard of, was well-known enough, I guess, in his day, mid to late 1800s, to have had his portrait painted by John Singer Sargent. This Ah. is a bit of a tangent. Oh, but it's a tangent I'm going to enjoy because I'm a huge fan of John Singer Sargent. Yeah, he painted Teddy Roosevelt and John D. Rockefeller and Henry James and Lady Astor and many, many others, including Coventry Patmore. And in fact, that painting is housed at the National Portrait Gallery in London. Why are we talking about Coventry Patmore? Well, in 1878, Patmore wrote a poem called Amelia. And I'll read from a 1905 biography of Patmore. He died in the 1890s. I'll read a very brief plot summary of Amelia. Quote, The hero of the poem is a man no longer quite young who has been betrothed to a certain Millicent. She has died and has been buried in the churchyard close by. After a period of deep sorrow, he falls in love again, this time with one of a simple birth and almost a child, Amelia. Incidentally, this was a very personal subject for Pat Moore, who was, at the time that he wrote this poem, himself a widower who had remarried. He would soon become a widower again and then remarry again for the third time. So he writes this poem, Amelia, in the first person. And when the narrator and Amelia go for their first unaccompanied walk together, he takes Amelia to the gravesite of Millicent. Before I even remark on that, the idea of going on an unaccompanied walk, that's pretty close to being betrothed, right? I mean, there, that is a bold move in the 19th century. Right. I should say, though, that he gets the permission of Amelia's mother to do that. Yeah, did he tell her where they were going for their uh, afternoon out? Didn't seem so, no. No, I don't mm. think he did. I don't think he was like, well, we're going to the graveyard. Yeah, I think she probably would have preferred a little boating <laughs> right. or going to the fair. Or what I did when I was courting my now wife, our, oh, I don't know, second or third date. We went to Star Trek Improv. <laughs> I'm not sure if there was many troops performing that in the 1800s. 
not for the first, second, or 20th time, I am surprised that uh, Laura married you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she did. So while standing graveside, Amelia, quote, asked what Millicent was like. And the narrator tells her about Millicent of, quote, honeysuckle breath and of a wiser than a woman's brow, yet filled with only woman's love and how an incidental greatness charactered her unconsidered ways. Now, the line asked what Millicent was like is the earliest citation in the Oxford English Dictionary for the phrase, what is he like? What is she like? What is Mm. it like? Actually, I'm looking at the boldface entry in the OED right now, and it says, what is he, parentheses, or it like? It doesn't even include she, which is particularly egregious since its earliest citation asked what Millicent is like is about a she, Millicent. Yeah, okay, uh, fair enough. Your objection noted, but I'm surprised. I am really surprised that this construction came first in a poem it just doesn't strike me as how language evolution works or poetry. But, you know, those OED etymologists, they, uh, I guess they know their stuff. Or they don't. I think you might want to trust your intuition here. So the OED says that the phrase, what is he or it like, means, quote, what sort of a man is he? What sort of a thing is it? The expected answer being a description and not at all the mention of a resembling person or thing. Wait, so it was the first time these words were ever strung together to mean anything? Or the first time that they were strung together to mean questions about somebody's uh, character or qualities or description as opposed to their simple likeness? Those are all good questions, and we're getting there. So when Amelia asks what Millicent was like, we learn that she had honeysuckle breath, Okay, she had a wiser than a woman's brow, which sounds a little sexist in our age, but all right, she was smart. She had a great capacity for love. He's describing traits. And in general, when we ask that question, as the OED points out, that's what we want, right? In other words, we don't really want to know what someone or something is like. We want to know what it is. Yes, I understand. Although they have... The reason we're having this conversation is because those meanings have merged in common usage. Well, all of this got a woman named Anne Seton to wondering. Seton is a lexicographer and a classicist from Great Britain. And she wondered, well, I guess you could say three things. Is Coventry Patmore's line from Amelia the earliest example of that construction eliciting or implying or in some other way used in the context of a description rather than a comparison? Two, was there a time when that construction was used more so for the opposite to suggest a comparison rather than a description? And if so, then three, when did that change? Seton did some digging and published her findings recently in a very charming paper called A Literary History of the Strange Expression what is it like? Now, before we leave behind Mr. Patmore, I feel obligated by way of full disclosure to editorialize here just a bit. Not a very good poet, in my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. I'll let you judge either silently or aloud as you choose. All right, baby, bring it on. Here are the four opening lines of that poem, Amelia. 
Whenever mine eyes do my Amelia greet, it is with such emotion, as when, in childhood, turning a dim street, I first beheld the ocean. What? <laughs> is it, are you making that up? No. Those are the actual first four lines <laughs> of the poem. You know, when you <laughs> when you read the first line, I was thinking to myself, Bob, I said, Bob, Mike is going to dump all over poor Padmore. Judging him by 21st century standards when these are the cadences of a 19th century poet and when they came from the pen of William Wordsworth or Samuel Coleridge, nobody had a beef. But but now because this guy has, you know, not much of a artistic reputation, you're just going to you're just going to be cruel. And then you got to the second line. <laughs> it's uh it's juvenile. Do you know who else rhymes emotion with ocean, by the way? Elmo. <laughs> <laughs> Puppet bard. So if Coventry Patmore was a minor poet, then a contemporary of his named Charles Lutwidge Dodgson was arguably a major poet in many senses of that word. Dodgson is better known, of course, as Lewis Carroll. And Carroll, in my opinion, was so transcendently inventive that his works, many of his works, defy the usual categories that we place on literature like genre and form and even language. In fact, as a personal aside, I can't wait until my son, who is not quite two years old and has a special affinity for the stuffed flamingo that my mother bought him at FAO Schwartz, I can't wait until he is able to appreciate Lewis Carroll and comes upon the croquet game in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and the great line, the chief difficulty Alice found at first was in managing her flamingo. Which she was using as a croquet mallet. Exactly. And live hedgehogs as the croquet balls, if you remember. Very shortly after the croquet game in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Alice is talking to the mock turtle, who we know used to be a real turtle, but is unfortunately now a mock turtle. And he's telling Alice about a dance performed along the seashore called the Lobster Quadrille. He proceeds to demonstrate the dance with his friend the griffin while singing a song that begins, Will you walk a little faster, said a whiting to a snail. There's a porpoise close behind us, and he's treading on my tail. So the song is a dialogue between a whiting, which is a kind of fish, and a snail. And when the performance of the song and the dance is over, Alice says, Thank you. It's a very interesting dance to watch, and I do so like that curious song about the whiting. Oh, as to the whiting, said the mock turtle, they, you've seen them, of course. Yes, said Alice. I've often seen them at din... She checked herself hastily. She was about to say dinner. I don't know where din may be, said the mock turtle. But if you've seen them so often, of course, you know what they're like. Wait, 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 wait. What's the year? The year is 1865. And when was uh, Pat Moore's poem? 1878. <laughs> so, so I was was on the right track. You were indeed on the right track, Bobby. 
There's the construction, not in the form of a question exactly, but it's an implied question. Do you know, Alice, what a whiting is like? And I guess because Lewis Carroll was such an obscure author, having been a bestseller only for about 15 consecutive decades, the the editors of the OED never ran across his his uh, verse. So again, the implied question here is, do you know, Alice, what a whiting is like? I believe so, Alice replied thoughtfully. They have their tails in their mouths, and they're all over crumbs. You're wrong about the crumbs, said the mock turtle. Crumbs would all wash off in the sea, but they have their tails in their mouths. So here Alice offers a description, not a comparison, of what a whiting is like. Of course, her description is based on the fact that her familiarity with whiting is as dinner, (laughs) is as a meal, right? Prepared, apparently, with breadcrumbs. That's a very, very awkward situation. (laughs) and, And this happens to me all the time. When I'm trying to engage in a polite conversation, and, you know, cheerfully with someone very, very intimate with someone I'm about to eat. You have to do a delicate dance, right? It, it really, <laughs> really is a delicate dance. You might call it a lobster quadrille. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, let's take a short break here and talk about our sponsor, The Great Courses. I am really excited that we're featuring this new course called Great Masters. It is a lecture series that delves into the life and music of a number of well-known composers, including Mozart and Beethoven, Brahms, Tchaikovsky. I've been listening to the Mozart series recently. I'm a great fan of opera, and in fact, I collect opera on LP. And so I was really excited to listen to the course called Operas in Vienna in this Mozart series, which is taught by Professor Robert Greenberg, who's a musicologist and music historian and lectures widely on classical music and opera. And he recounts in this lecture, Operas in Vienna, the really unbelievable origin story of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. If you're a fan of Mozart, if you're a fan of that opera, you really got to hear this story. I would take issue with Greenberg probably, though, on one small point. He contends that The Marriage of Figaro is the best opera ever written. I would probably place it in the top five, sure, but I think I would have to put something by Verdi or Rossini as number one. That's just my personal preference. So for a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. You can order from among those four Great Masters series, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, or Tchaikovsky, for just $9.95. Remember, this special price of $9.95 is only available for a limited time, so order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, so we now know that what is it like, what is X like, let's say, because it could be someone or something, in the context of a description predates Amelia by Coventry Patmore because Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, as we said, was published in 1865. And in fact, there are examples throughout the mostly mid, but even early 1800s. So, for example, in 1847, Jane Eyre asks the housekeeper, Mrs. Fairfax, about Miss Ingram. Blanche Ingram, if you read Jane Eyre, is a socialite who is interested in Rochester, 
because he has money. And so naturally, Jane Eyre wants to know about Miss Ingram, who she has never met, but Mrs. Fairfax has seen. And Fairfax launches into a full-on description in response to the very question, and what was she like? Fairfax says, tall, fine bust, sloping shoulders, long, graceful neck, olive complexion, dark and clear, etc., etc. She even describes what she was wearing. She says she was dressed in pure white. An amber-colored scarf was passed over her shoulder and across her breast, tied at the side and descending in long, fringed ends below her knee. She wore an amber-colored flower, too, in her hair. It contrasted well with the jetty mass of her curls. Uh, This is interesting, and that takes us back another 15 years from Pat Moore. But something else occurs to me, and it's approximately the same period. Did we not have a conversation about Anna Karenina? With the great Masha Gessen. And this whole question of like and alike came up then, didn't it? I hadn't remembered, but you're right, it did. And that informs this discussion in a sense, because those are the sorts of things that not only a translator has to grapple with, but we see can change within a language over time, which is where we're going. Mm -hmm. So Seton found a bunch more examples, but two in particular I think are noteworthy. The first is from the novel Dr. Thorne by Anthony Trollope from 1858. I'll spare you the intricate plot details, but... It's sufficient to say that one character, Mary, asked her uncle about another character. She said, what is he like, uncle? And he replies, like? I never know what a young man is like. He is like a man with red hair. And she replies, uncle, you are the worst hand in describing I ever knew. Now, this is interesting because in the dialogue, Trollope was using an expression which I correctly guessed was part of the parlance of the day, but perhaps only freshly part of the parlance because the uncle seems to be confused by the way it's phrased. He's being asked for a description, and he's a bit confounded by the question. Yeah, exactly. This exchange suggests that the uncle, who happens to be the titular Dr. Thorne of the novel, he's not quite on board with what is X like as a way to elicit a description, right? He says, like, I never know what a young man is like. He is like a man with red hair. This implies, perhaps, that the phrase is still sort of finding its footing, right? It still hasn't Mm -hmm. gained universal, unself-conscious acceptance. I feel for the uncle because, you know, when the young kids use their current slang, like hepcat and sock-it-to-me baby... (laughs) I find myself kind of faking it, pretending that I understand what they're talking about, but really rather puzzled as to what it is they're trying to express. Right. And what's particularly great about this example, I like your joke, by the way, about this example is that Mary, the niece, explicitly tells us that it's a description she's after. She says, Uncle, you are the worst hand in describing I ever knew. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the other example I alluded to is both interesting and frustrating. It's interesting because of how early it is. It's the oldest citation of this sort that Seton chronicles, and it's from the great Jane Austen, whose works are a trove of so much that is interesting and developing in the English language. 
in Sense and Sensibility, Eleanor, who is the heroine of the novel and who carries a torch for her beloved Edward Ferrars, Eleanor is very excited at the prospect of meeting Edward's mother, Mrs. Ferrars, at a dinner party because, as Jane Austen tells us, Eleanor is curious, quote, to know what she, meaning Mrs. Ferrars, to know what she was like. Now, what's frustrating is that Jane Austen, as the narrator, doesn't then tell us what Mrs. Ferrars is like, so we're left to assume that the like here implies a description, and in fact, Anne Seton conjectures in her paper, quote, it can hardly be a comparison of Mrs. Ferrars to this or that that Eleanor is curious about. She wants to know the facts about her personality and be able to describe her to herself. Sense and Sensibility was published in 1811. Okay, so that's the first citation for the use of the phrase probably to mean description. Do you have earlier uses of the phrase to mean comparison? I mean, it would not shock me if you found something in Shakespeare. So this is what is really fascinating about what Seton found. It's that when you go to the other side of 1800, to the 1700s, the 1600s, even earlier, the context in which the what is X-like construction comes up, at least in literature, is a comparison. So just 15 years or so prior to Sense and Sensibility in the 1790s, William Godwin published a novel called Things As They Are. And in it, it's suggested of an unmarried woman named Emily that she settled down with a Mr. Grimes. And you can probably tell by his name that he's not going to be an appealing character. And Emily says, quote, Mr. Grimes is such a strange man. Why, I do not know what he is like. He is like for all the world a great huge porpoise. No, I thank you. When I do have a husband, it shall not be such a man as Grimes. So, first of all, ouch, right? Emily's kind of a jerk, sort of fat-shaming Grimes, however despicable he might be. Yeah, and, of course, that was considered so lookist uh, at the time. I, I'm shocked that it would even appear in print. I mean, come on. I believe in the 1790s it was referred to as a microaggression. <laughs> exactly. And there should have been a trigger warning before the potentially traumatic issue of weight was uh, brought up. But more to the point, we get an unequivocal comparison, and that's also what we get in the 1760s in a poem called A Pastoral Cordial by John Hall Stevenson. He writes, My thoughts of government, though vain, are singular and entertaining. How many parts it may contain, and what they're like, is worth explaining. Hmm. They're three, and each like a wild beast. The first to a lion I compare, the next to a tiger from the east. The third is like an alpine bear. Well, that sounds like like the comparison to me. And a comparison is also what we get in the 1600s when in Twelfth Night, Olivia asks the clown Festy, what's a drunken man like? And he replies, like a drowned man, a fool, and a madman. One draft above heat makes him a fool, the second mads him, and a third drowns him. So again, a rather flowery comparison here. I know this is going to end at like Deuteronomy. It's going to end in, in hieroglyphics. It's going to end in cave drawings. Well, I'll give you one final comparison that we get in 1525, not from Deuteronomy, but from William Tyndale's translation of the New Testament 
into English. So in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, we have, Then said he, he being Jesus, Then said he, What is the kingdom of God like? Or whereto shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air built in the branches of it. Now, what's interesting, and Ann Seton doesn't mention this in her paper, but in the following verses, 20 and 21, Tyndale's translation is, And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like heaven, which a woman took and hid in three bushels of flour, till it was all thorough leavened. So you see in verse 18, then said he, what is the kingdom of God like? And in verse 20, and again he said, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? So he's explicitly equating the expression, what is X like with what should I liken X to? In other words, it would probably be unthinkable for Tyndale to use that expression in any way other than a comparison. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So again, at least as used in literary contexts, and for the purposes of this discussion, we're considering the Bible here to be a work of literature, there appears to be an invisible linguistic line right around the year 1800, right? Before which, what is X like was taken to imply a comparison, and after which, a description in general. So the question remains, Bob, and I'll quote Ann Seton, If what is it like did not establish itself as a description-seeking question until about 1800, how did English elicit a description before this time? Well, it did what other languages did and continued to do. So I'll give you a clue by just saying the phrase in other languages. Comenetil, como es, come, viest es. In other words... This is all how. Exactly. How is it? That's how you elicit a description in other languages, and that was often how you did it in English prior to 1800. But also English had available, and still does, other expressions such as what kind of thing is it? What sort of thing is it? In Antony and Cleopatra, Lepidus asks Antony, what manner o thing is your crocodile? Which is precisely tantamount to asking, what is a crocodile like, right? He wants to know the famed Nile crocodile. What's it like? Only in this case, Antony famously answers with a series of very uninformative tautologies. He says, it is shaped, sir, like itself, and it is as broad as it hath breadth. It is just so high as it is and moves with its own organs. It lives by that which nourisheth it and the elements once out of it it transmigrates. It is time for us now, Bob, to depart. And what is it like, you're wondering, this act of departing? Well, Ben Johnson answered that very question in 1640 with a comparison. Since you must go, he wrote, and I must bid farewell, here, mistress, your departing servant tell what it is like. And then he tells us what it is like. It is as if a night should shade noonday, or that the sun was here, but forced away. That's so poignant. I mean, Shakespeare did it in two words, so (laughs) sweet sorrow, which is even poignanter. Well, three, if you include the such. Yeah, yeah. He's not that good. Come on. He's not that good. 
But that's what departing is like. And if you want to know what other things are like, you'll have to ask us by writing to us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley, and please subscribe to our feed in iTunes. I want to thank Ann Seaton, whose great paper is called A Literary History of the Strange Expression, What Is It Like? And you can find it in the journal English Today. Joel Meyer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers, our executive producer. Hey, Mike, are we done here? Yeah, we're done. All right, let me just say this. When upon my sullen eyes appeared the image of old Pat Moore, innovator, I knew the vibe was getting kind of weird. And therefore, may I just say, later, Gator. (laughs) What is it like? Yeah.